I'm Emma Scoville, and welcome to Gem City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We are from the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity and inclusion. This season, we are diving into discrimination in Dayton, and today's episode is the second part of our two-part series on sexism. So you might be wondering, why am I doing the intro instead of Lake? Well, today, like we mentioned, we have a special guest. Our special guest is Kayla Kingston, who you might remember from our Dane Diversity Highlights. Why don't you say hello, Kayla? Hi, everyone. This is Kayla. We're really excited to have Kayla here. And today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about famous women in Dayton. And so to celebrate the famous women, we've decided to elevate female voices, which is why we've brought Kayla in today and why Lake isn't in the studio with us. So, Kayla, do you want to start us off with our first famous female? Yes, definitely. Today, the first female from the Dayton area that we'll be highlighting is Hallie Quinn Brown, who was an African-American author, educator, and equal rights advocate. Pretty perfect for Gem City diversity, if you ask me. Oh, for sure. So, Hallie actually was not born in Dayton, Ohio, like some of the other women we'll be highlighting. She was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on March 10, 1845. And she was the daughter of two former slaves who were very active in the Underground Railroad. But the reason that we're highlighting Hallie today is because the family actually relocated to Xenia, Ohio in 1870 when Hallie was 25 years old. So as most of you probably know, Xenia is a suburb in the Dayton area, which makes it extremely relevant. During this time, Hallie actually attended Wilberforce University and graduated in 1873. And I actually thought this was probably the most interesting fact about Hallie, in my opinion, just because when I think about an African-American woman Mm -hmm. from the 1800s, the last thing I would think about is attending a university. Same. I, women in general didn't really attend university at this time. So that's really impressive that she was able to go to university and further her education. I don't know too much about Wilberforce, but I do think that it's very interesting that she was able to get a college education considering that this was 1873 when she graduated. And even when I think of 1973, a lot of women still weren't getting a college education today. Mm -hmm. Um, So after that, Hallie accepted a teaching position in some African-American schools in Columbia, South Carolina, and she served as the dean at Allen University, which is a historically black institution of higher education. Then from 1887 to 1891, she taught at night school for African-Americans in Dayton, Ohio. So this is when Hallie kind of comes back to Dayton. And we see that she's like become a professor at these universities, which I still think is very interesting. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's really like sort of a pioneer, you know, if you think about it, like when she was born, we're still dealing with slavery. Mm -hmm. And so quickly she was able to get out of that mold and sort of go to school and then teach others. And she taught at historically African-American schools, which I think is really impressive just to see that sort of growth because a lot of times, I think when we're focused on the 1800s, we just see slavery as being such a large part of that that I think we forget to think about all of the amazing things that African-Americans were able to do despite of that Mm -hmm. dark part of our history. This really reminds me of the pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality America has. People would say oh, well, look, Hallie was able to do it. She could pull herself up from the bootstraps, and her parents were former slaves. And um, that just reminds reminds me of, like, this idea of, like, American dream, work hard, you'll do it, which, like, in her case, did work. Yeah. But in the case of many others, it's not actually 
something that we see occur frequently. Yeah. It's kind of a rare story. Yeah, and a lot of times, just due to the way society works and the systems that are in place, this is sort of seen as impossible. And, I mean, for African-American women even to get this education and mm-hmm. have these positions of power today it's is very still something. Difficult. Yeah, yeah, that's very difficult, and you don't hear about a lot. So in 1894, Brown became extremely active in civil rights and the temperance movement. And she actually traveled across the United States of America and even went overseas to lecture and continue to educate people on these different movements. In 1893, she became extremely involved in the Colored Women's League of Washington, D.C. And that same year, she helped establish the National Association of Colored Women. So she actually served as the president of this group And following her tenure as the president, the association appointed her as the honorary president for the remainder of her life. Wow, she's done a lot. Yeah, she really did get around and kind of make an impact on the world. Yeah. And before I had even done any of this research, I actually had never heard of Hallie before. Me either. Which is really bizarre considering that she had such an impact, and especially an impact in the Dayton, Ohio area. Yeah, because a lot of other women like Irma Bombeck or other people like that you hear about, like... Or I know Paul Lawrence Dunbar isn't, like, a female, but, like, you hear about these people all the time just going to school here. Yeah. So after doing all of those amazing things, she actually came back to Ohio. So we kind of see her doing this come to Ohio, Mm -hmm. leave Ohio thing. And she served as a professor at her former school, Wilberforce University. And she sort of continued her efforts. She helped organize the Ohio State Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. And she was the president of that organization for a short while. And throughout the course of her life overall, she really authored several books, many of which talked about the plight of African-Americans and sort of the place of Mm -hmm. African-Americans in the United States. And she then died on September 16th, 1949. She lived a long life. (laughs) She was over 100 years old. And I think you can see that she was really just an amazing woman overall. Yeah, for sure. I can't imagine living that long and living through so many important parts of history like yeah 1845 to 1949 so much happens in those oh, 100 yeah. years so much changed throughout those 100 yeah. years and it's just amazing to see that she went along with all of that mm-hmm. and was able to have such an yeah. impact she really facilitated that change yeah definitely all right so we're gonna move on to our second famous female and that would be Jane Reese, who was born in 1869 and then died in 1961. So Jane Reese was a one of the most famous artists from Dayton, and she was a photographer for 40 plus years. So during her career, she exhibited more than one, oh she exhibited in more than 100 photography salons and shows around the world, and she received many awards, prizes, and honors. And she's now recognized as one of Dayton's most prominent artists, as I said. So. Details of her early life are kind of confusing and conflicting. She was very secretive. She didn't like to tell people how old she was or she was very private about her life. And so sometimes she would say things and people weren't sure if they were true. So now basically everything we know about her early life is from reconstructions from letters and journals and stuff like that. Not necessarily from things she told people because she was very secretive about her personal life. That's really interesting. I know. I was like, um, I've heard of people being secretive about how old they are. You know, you never ask a woman her age. That's true. But Jane Reese kind of took it to the next level, if Definitely. you ask me. And I think that's 
great for her if that's what she wanted, but it does make it difficult when you're trying to learn the history about someone. Yeah. And so um, her father was a former prisoner of war during the Civil War, actually, so getting back to those Civil War connections. And um, after he died, she grew up in Zanesville, Ohio. And she, before she was a photographer, she was a painter. But she either had tuberculosis or spinal meningitis. Nobody's really sure which. But she had one of those, and it caused her hands to be not steady enough to paint anymore. So in 1903, she stopped painting, and she began taking photographs. So in 1903 is when she um, recovered from her disease, and when she was sick, she spent some time in North Carolina. But then she moved to Dayton, which kind of starts her career of back and forth in Dayton, just like um, Hallie. So um, she opened a large photographic studio, and she called it The Remembrant, kind of hoping that this name would attract clients to come and get portraits by her. And her strategy worked because within one year, she had made over 600 photographic silhouette portraits. So she was very prolific. Wow, yeah. That's just the beginning of her career. There was a lot more to come. Yeah. So she also went to college, but... Unlike Hallie, she did not graduate. So in 1909, she went to study at Columbia, but she came back to Dayton after only four months because she said her professor had decided that she knew all that she needed to know and didn't need to be there anymore, which... That's pretty impressive. That's crazy, but like we said earlier, is this true? We have no idea. Nobody knows. I wish my professors would say that to me. (laughs) You're so talented. You only need to be here for four months. We're giving you your degree right now. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Uh, We would save so much money that way. True. But that's another problem for another day, college prices. So in 1911, she traveled to California, which is kind of one of the first of her many trips to California. And during that time, she worked on her series, The Soul and Bondage. And Dominique Vissera, who is the former curator at the Dane Art Institute, said this series symbolizes a physio- phys- psychological, sorry guys, an emotional struggle of great proportion, which one must assume to be autobiographical. Autobiographical. I cannot speak again. This happened to me last time, too. <laughs> I guess it's just this Auto special. Bio. <laughs> I don't even know how you said it. First I don't know either. <laughs> so embarrassing. Oh well. Not cutting this out either. So the reason why this was considered to be autobiographical is because during this time Reese was really questioning her decision to be a photographer. She was having financial troubles and her health was failing. Two things that would plague her throughout her entire life. In fact, I'm gonna skip to like her death. After she retired from taking photographs, she ended up dying alone, sick, and poor because she just, that was just kind of like a reoccurring theme of her life, which is really sad when you think about it, that she could be so famous and so well-known and she even took like portraits of Helen Keller and Woodrow Wilson's daughter. So she was taking pictures of really famous people and at the end of her life, we just kind of left her to die by herself yeah and i think it just goes to show you that a lot of times and this is very relevant for today as well when you see people who are really pursuing their passions and doing things that i think are really important just for culture and humanity in Mm -hmm. general things that involve art and the beauty of the world those are not very lucrative jobs and i think that's just sort of a crime in the world today that 
we don't seem to value those things as being real jobs that are actually helping the world progress. Right. Like everybody loves photos or they love music or they love looking at paintings, but the people who do those jobs, we devalue and don't care about and say, starving artist. Like, I don't want my child to become an artist, like all this sort of thing. Exactly. Um, so then in the 20s and 30s, that's when she achieved her national and international claim for her work. So she started traveling abroad and she did um, some different work and did shows in different places. So um, one of the reasons for her success was that she incorporated a variety of different styles in her work. And she regularly experimented with different genres and models and subjects about that. And she also was very famous for making the people she took portraits of turn in. She kind of portrayed them as characters hmm. instead of people. So she would dress them up or position them in certain ways to kind of give her photos like an interesting spin. But then in the mid-1930s, her eyesight began to fail, which was kind of the beginning of the end of her career. So she eventually gave up taking photographs at age 76 in 1944. But recall, she didn't die until... 1961 so she still lived for 20 more years after she retired so that could definitely have something to do with her dying like poor but then um so two of the reasons why she ended up retiring was because of her failed eyesight and also the style of pictures that she took was called pictorialism which was um a photographic style that depicted people and scenes in dreamy lighting and soft focus and I saw some of her photos while I was doing my research and they truly were some dreamy lighting it was kind of very magical and mystical looking a little bit but by the 40s this style of photographs were not very popular so nobody really wanted them anymore after having so much success and then at the end of her life she donated 400 of her photographs to the Dane Art Institute and about 10,000 glass plate negatives to Wright State when she passed away. So she took so many photos, and she's definitely one of Dayton's most well-known artists. But as we said, even at the end of her life, that wasn't enough to, uh, I don't know, give her a good send-off, if that makes sense. Definitely. I think something that interests me the most about her is just talking about photography in general. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... It's difficult for us to have an understanding of what it meant to be a photographer back in the early 1900s because now everyone has a camera all the time on their cell phone. Everybody's a photographer. Yes, everyone can take pictures with your fancy iPhone filters and different things like that. But during this time period, really the only people who had access to cameras and money to afford cameras and take pictures were photographers. Having a photograph was not something that was typical for a family to just have sitting around and so this was really the only way that you could capture these moments and especially when it comes to like headshots it was really the only way to get one capture that someone like existed and like looked this way during this moment in their life and so I think it's really interesting just to point out how unique this was during that time period she was doing something that not a lot of people knew how to do which made it a very high in demand skill yeah it was very like technologically savvy for that time period, Mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic. So if we want to move on to our next famous Dayton woman, we'll be talking about Clara E. Weisenborn, who was a prominent Ohio politician. So Clara was born February 7th, 1907 in Dayton. So she is one of our Dayton natives. 
and she actually left school after eighth grade, so she only had wow. up to an eighth grade education because she had to help raise her ten younger siblings. Can you imagine having ten younger siblings? Mm-hmm. I have two, and that is, like, more than enough siblings yeah, for me. I come from a very small family, so I cannot imagine having any larger than we have, and there's just four of us, so, including my parents, point out. So I only have one sibling, <laughs> which makes it a very small say, family. I made it sound like you had four siblings. No, I don't have four siblings. So, yeah, and I think it's very interesting also to talk about the fact that she only had an eighth grade education, but she still went on to do all of these amazing things mm-hmm. and become a politician. Yeah. And I think compared to the other women who we've talked about who, you know, were given the chance to go to the to university, college, yeah. which is fantastic. But this also shows that it's not necessarily necessary to mm-hmm. be someone who is so amazing and so talented and such a big part of kind of moving along the world. Like, you don't need yeah. a college education to do those right. things. for sure. So, Clara married Herbert Weisenborn in 1923, which means she was only 16 years old at the time. (laughs) So, this kind of sped along her life pretty quickly. But after this, she was extremely active in the community. She served as the president of the local parent-teacher association. She was a member of band parents and a member of the local 4-H chapter. She was also a Sunday school teacher for 53 consecutive years. Wow, that's so long. That is a very, very, very long time. I cannot imagine doing something every single Sunday for 53 years of my life. No. But that's fantastic. And she even wrote a weekly newspaper column on gardening for the Journal Herald for 42 years. That's nice. I know nothing about gardening, but I'm sure it was fantastic to read. I bet we could even find some in the archives somewhere. I'm like sure we could. Some see some cl- some news clippings, see what she wrote about gardening. Yes. So besides doing these very just community-driven things, mm-hmm. she became very involved in politics, which I think makes a lot of sense because I, when you're involved in your community and you care about the people who are around you, mm-hmm. I think that you almost want to be involved in the political side of things because you know that that, at least in the way our society works right now, is sometimes the best way to get the people you love the things that they need. Right, make your voice heard for the people that you're representing. Definitely. So this is when she had her passion in politics kind of come up, and she actually won the election to the Ohio House of Representatives in 1952, and she served until 1967 as a member of the Republican Party. She was then elected to the Ohio Senate in 1966 and served in the Senate until 1975. I think this is just fantastic to think about a woman being a part of our political system back Mm -hmm. in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, because this is when we really see, you know, second wave feminism coming around and we see sort of women saying, hey, this isn't right, like the sexism we're seeing. And she's out there saying, I'm a woman and I want to be represented and kind of shown in the political sector and not just, you know, in the private life, you know? Right. And, um... Thinking about life today, I think it's only about 25% of our elected officials, at least at the national level, I don't know about the state level like she was serving at, but the national level, I think it's only about 25% that are women, which is not 50%, which is about the population split. Actually, I think it's like 51, 49 or something like that. So it's nice to see that. I mean... You know, this was so many years ago, Mm -hmm. and we still aren't even there. But it's nice to see that this is sort of where women are kind of getting their start in these positions. Yeah. So during her time with the Ohio General Assembly, Claire really focused on health, education, agricultural, and environmental issues. 
And she was actually the first woman to serve as chair of the Senate's Education and Health Committee. Oh. Um, and kind of leading off of that, she played a leading role in establishing the Wright State University School of Medicine. So this really brings us right back to Dayton. You know, she's yeah. a Dayton native who is... I'm sure um, she was representing Dayton in, at the Ohio exactly. legislature. So she's this Dayton native who was very involved in her community. And even when she goes up to be a part of the Senate, you know, she's really still focused on bringing things back to her mm-hmm. community yeah. and making Dayton a better area. And Wright State is a school in our area that, you know, has had a lot of difficulty lately. Yeah, recently, um, last school year, there was a strike by the professors, which kind of threw into doubt w- if students would be able to graduate and kind of what was going to happen with the school. Was it going to have to close? And that was... I mean, just hearing about it, I was like, what if this were to happen at my school? Yeah, but I know that you're going to look at some of Wright State's medical stuff today. I am. So I'm in in, an English research class that is centered around the rhetoric of health and medicine. And um, for those of you who don't know, UD doesn't really have a lot of things about medicine because we don't have a medical school or anything like that. But Wright State has a very large archive with um, information about health and medicine. So my class is actually going there later today to look at the archives. And I'm definitely going to be looking at a lot of different things that they have in there. And I'm really excited about it. And um, it's really nice of them to allow us to go in and see all of those, like all the information that they have. Yeah. And while you're there, you can know that Claire helped set that up. Oh, yeah, I can. I'll say a little like what up to her while I'm there, you know? A little thank you. But so after living such an amazing politically involved life, Mm -hmm. um, Claire died January 26, 1985, and she's now entombed in the Woodland Mausoleum. I have never been to the Woodland Cemetery, have you? I have, actually. I would definitely suggest going out there. It's Um, on my bucket list before I graduate. Yeah, so the Woodland Cemetery is actually an arboretum, so it's very beautiful because there's just... uh, so many trees and a lot of wildlife around and if you go over there um there's like a hill that you can go to the top of and there's this little what are those called i don't know what you're (laughs) the the little like circular things with like pillars oh a gazebo a gazebo and there's a little gazebo and if you stand inside the gazebo you are actually at the highest point in dayton ohio oh and so if you go over there you get the most beautiful view of dayton i think in the world and it's just it's very peaceful and there's a lot of really famous dayton people who are just buried in the woodland cemetery so the wright brothers are actually over there as well um so if you get the chance i would definitely suggest going over there at some point All right, we're going to move on to um, our next lady, and that would be Geraldine Blunden, who was born in 1940 and then ended up dying in 1999. And she was the founder and the artistic director of the Dayton Contemporary Dance Company, or DCDC. So she was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1940, as I said, and she basically lived in Dayton for her entire life for the most part. So um, she began dancing at the Linden Center at age six, And so in 1948, when she was eight, a bunch of African-American mothers approached the Schwarz School of Dance. Oh, I forgot to mention that um, Blunden was an African-American, which was very important in setting up DCDC in her dance career. So the Schwarz School of Dance, which later became the Dane Ballet, um, they wanted to enroll their children there, but they weren't allowed to because segregation was still kind of the law of the land. 
And so Blondin and the other children couldn't go there. But Josephine and Hermine Schwartz, who were the founders of the school, um, bought, brought classes to the Linden Center, and they ended up acting as mentors for Blondin later on. So by age 19, she had already gone to several different summer programs and was the director of dance classes at the Linden Center. And under her leadership, enrollment and like exploded, so they had to move somewhere else to have a bigger space so that so many people could dance, which is really cool. And then in 1963, she opened up her own dance school called Geraldine's School of Dance, and she continued to perform during this time, and she had performances at the American Dance Festival, the Antioch Summer Theater, and more. And then in 1968, this is when she established the Dating Contemporary Dance Company, and it was to create dance and performance opportunities for dancers of color. And by 1972, the company already had 12 members, including her daughter, who would later take over DCDC after her passing. So in 1973, really exciting, DCDC became the first African-American dance company to gain membership as a performing company in the Northeast Regional Ballet Association after performing Blunden's Ballet Flight. So I don't know how much people know about dance, but even today, it's very difficult for um, women of color or people of color to get leading roles in ballets and stuff like that. It's still very much dominated by white people. So DCDC really provided an opportunity for people of color to have leading roles and do amazing things, which is really cool. And um, she, throughout her life, received lots of awards and commendations, including the prestigious John Dean Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Genius Fellowship Award in 1994. And there was a lot of other things. She also got honorary doctorate degrees from both the University of Dayton and Wright State University. Wow. And um, one thing that I think is the coolest thing about her is that DCDC is one of the largest dance companies in the United States outside of Chicago and New York. So That she, is very interesting. Yes. Yeah, so Dayton is a pretty small city in the Definitely. middle of Ohio. Not people, not many people know about it yeah. outside of maybe like UD's basketball team or something or the tragic events of the summer. But like other than that, people don't know much about it. But yeah. compared to other cities in Ohio, like Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, yeah. Dayton's not really considered one of the top cities, you know. Mm -hmm. But we have one of the largest dance companies and a very impressive one as well. Yeah, and I do think that you see that Dayton is really like a great hub for these sort of artistic avenues and yes. just we have a really great downtown area with a lot of different dancing. We have the performing the Schuster Center, which is a performing arts center, which brings a lot of really great um, Broadway shows through mm -hmm. the Dayton area. Yeah. And so we really see that although people may not recognize it, like it's this really great area to be at for these sort of artistic places. Mm-hmm. I also think that just one of the best things about this story, in my opinion, is just, you know, using dance as sort of a way to show women and especially African-American girls that there's so much out there for them and that like yeah. this is like a great way to like become involved and sort of have passion in your life. Mm -hmm. We are out of time and there are so many more famous women from Dayton that we could have talked about, but these four really give you guys kind of a sampling of the amazing things that they've done here. So um, before we get to this closing, Kayla, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank really, you so much for having me. It has truly been a pleasure. Yeah, I had a great time talking with you. Thank you for tuning into Gem City Diversity. Come back next time as we dive into our next topic. For more information on NCCJ and diversity within the Miami Valley, 
go visit www.nccjgreaterdane.org. Make sure to like NCCJ of Greater Dane on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at nccj underscore of underscore greater underscore Dayton, and follow us on Twitter at nccjdayton. I'm Emma Skoll, and today I was joined by Kayla Kingston, and we'll see you next time.